This episode is sponsored by Arc IT, and you'll find out more about them later on in the episode. Hi there, I'm Evan Troxel. Welcome to my podcast about how technology is changing the architectural profession. Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Evan Troxel. This is episode 42, which we all know is the answer to life, the universe, and everything. And in this episode, I welcome back an earlier guest, Randy Deutsch, FAIA. In the previous episode, I did not do an intro for Randy. I wasn't doing that back then, so I figure I should do it now. Randy served as an associate director for graduate studies until 2019 and is clinical associate professor at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. He teaches and conducts research in design, professional practice, building technology, and digital technology. Randy is an international keynote speaker, workshop leader, AI researcher, and design technology authority. He's really a tour de force in the speaking circuit, which is where I met him originally. And we were both speakers alongside many others in the AEC technology space in New York City in 2019 at the Building Design and Constructions Accelerate AEC conference. In addition to his teaching and speaking roles, Randy is the author of six books. Some notable ones that I own are Convergence, The Redesign of Design, which was published in 2017, about the nature of the ongoing convergence of technology and the work processes in the profession and industry, Super Users, Design Technology Specialist and the Future of Practice, which was published in 2019, and Randy has recently written two more books, Think Like an Architect, How to Develop Critical, Creative, and Collaborative Problem-Solving Skills was published in the fall of 2020, and now Adapt as an Architect, a mid-career companion, which I was very excited to be a contributor on, along with many other mid-career architects, which I'll translate that for you means we have gray hair, and it's available very, very soon. You can pre-order it now. It's coming out the spring of 2021, and I'll have a link to that in the show notes. This was a fantastic conversation with Randy. It's always great to catch up with him. So many things that were covered during this and obviously kind of wrapped up around the main topic of his new book. So without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Randy Deutsch. Randy, welcome back to the podcast. It's been a long time. Thanks, Evan, for having me again. It's great to be back with you today. It's been about a year since we last talked, and we were just chatting pre-show, just so the audience is kind of in on this. And and something that you said was really intriguing, and I think this will lead us to our other topics that I would like to talk with you about, which are your, your books that have come out. So let's start with this. You said AI is going to save us. So I want you to explain that. What what do you mean when you say AI is going to save us? Because I think when when we talk about AI on this show and we talk about different architects who say they're using it versus who actually are using it, it's a it's a very big discrepancy there, right? A lot of it's marketing and buzzwords and things like that, but then there's actually practical uses of machine learning and AI. So what do you see in there that's getting you excited about that? What I am seeing in... Um, and I have a very privileged and, you know, not entitled necessarily, but very privileged view as a full-time academic and somebody who goes around doing keynotes. What I'm seeing is that right now we have a constellation of stars out there and each one has a different piece 
of the puzzle right. has a different tech that they're really focused on. Totally. And what we do in our profession, on our teams, in our industry, when we, even when we're working in you know, Yellow Trace or Moleskins, is we have this ability as design professionals to zoom in and out. And there's something that's happened during the pandemic that all we've done is zoom in. <laughs> I mean, that's really the perspective I have. Each of us is kind of focused on our own tech. You're an exception in that you zoom out a great deal, of course, to talk to different individuals, connect the dots between the individuals, their technologies, the things they're focused on. You're a guest on other shows as well. And that also gives you uh, a perspective because um, we have to learn how to talk about what it is we're saying, we're thinking and doing yeah. in other people's terms, right? Yeah. Um, and so what I am seeing now is that as we come out, as we get vaccinated and come out of this pandemic, is there isn't anyone doing this, but there is this opportunity to connect these different stars, just the same way that we have these apps that allow us, or when we're with a child, you point up at the night sky, and you can see how the individual stars form patterns or form recognizable, you know. Uh, Pictographs, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And there really isn't anybody connecting those dots right now for us. But when I look at the individual, you know, I zoom out, and listen to all the podcasts and attend all, the, you know, I mean, literally try to attend. You know, uh, Henry James has this wonderful quote, try to be someone on whom nothing is lost. Mm. And, you know, that's primarily recommendation for when you become a novelist, but I believe it's a really good recommendation for architects as well. When you do zoom out, you see that all the pieces just about are there. What's missing is somebody really, you know, stitching these things together um, or some things stitching these things together. When I discuss this with very few people, primarily my wife, you know, because everyone else is on lockdown right now, you know, what we come up with are ideas like aggregators, you know, we can bring all these different texts together. And I don't think that's necessarily the answer, although anyone listening in right now to your podcast who thinks that that maybe is the way to go. That's the million dollar idea. Kudos to you. But, you know, in the year two, three ahead, I'm pretty certain we're going to start seeing some of these tools uh, combined mm -hmm. because that's the way, you know, we were doing things since the last economic downturn until the current one. We were bringing uh, tools that never uh, talk to each other, work friendly together, um, work together. And I think we're going to continue to do that. I'm seeing... Less of a concern about these GANs or uh, generative tools taking, you know, the fear of taking away people's jobs and just seeing that in general, they're ridiculous. They're coming up with things that nobody asked for them to come up with and that we are going to, and I think all the startups recognize this as well, that we're going to be, as humans, engaging with these tools, modifying them, right. but letting them at the same time inform us and improve our, our abilities at the same time. If we're working in a dashboard, for example, we're going to just work with them. They're going to augment our capabilities as designers, as thinkers, um, as people try to improve um, life for others, whether it's through building or however we can do that, through improving um, our prospects with climate change, for example, or with the need for housing and even um, you know, the drive for um, immigration that's going to increase the amount of housing that we have to create. I think the tools are there right now that can do all of this. You know, if there's a problem, it's just the fact that we have a bunch of stars and that's it. Yeah, it's interesting because I think about this open source mentality, not to say that all the software that we're talking about or the startups are open source in nature, but they think that way. 
as far as how they communicate and how they tell their story and how open they are to having those conversations on social media out in the open, I'm sure there's lots that go on behind the closed doors as well. But there is a lot of coordination and communication and collaboration in the open, which is very different than how things have ever been inside AEC. And that, I think, alone is what is starting to enable these stars to become a lot more aligned, right? Because they still are focusing on their piece of the overall puzzle, very you know, laser-focused. And they're also saying, okay, what do we need to make it work with these other pieces? Because they're also focused, too, to create a complete solution. And I don't think there's nobody orchestrating all that, right? Everybody's kind of left to play their part and, and make their decisions and see where they can plug in or or unplug, as it were. But it really feels like the conversation has really changed around all that stuff. Completely agree with you on that. In, in 2017, when I came out with my book, uh, Convergence, I talked about the software of everything or the algorithm of everything. And it was this idea of an overriding body that would combine all these things together and make them work. And that, you know, all those everything ideas, you know, same thing with the theory of everything for the universe. Mm-hmm. All these things are kind of a, a, a waste of time or a bad idea overall. I think we can work with the individual parts, but what we need to do is look for ways to combine things. And you're absolutely spot on when you say something has happened even in just the last year while, while we've uh, been going through the pandemic, that um, things have become more open and more open-minded. We're, maybe it's the fact that we're using these collaboration tools, like you and I right now as we're speaking, right. um, and more sophisticated ones, of course, as we bring in others. And we can see we can collaborate. Now, at the same time, anecdotally, you know, the, uh, recently I gave a uh, keynote for Perkins & Will, and just outside my door, some contractors were jackhammering the concrete in my building. And that doesn't play really well when you're, uh, you know, remotely trying to deliver a keynote to 2,500 people. Nobody coordinated that schedule. Yeah. (laughs) I went out there, asked them nicely, you know, they can call their boss and ask, you know, their manager, could they stop for an hour, have lunch early, something like that. And yeah, they got the go ahead, but then they kept doing, you know, jackhammering. So I went out there, gave each of them 50 bucks and said, now would you stop? I said, oh, we're going to stop. That's you know fine. They kept working, kept making noise. I had my wife go out there. So I guess what I'm getting at is, yeah, I think we're collaborating as an industry, A, E, and C. We're not always cooperating. And cooperating mm-hmm. is actually a lower level, lower hanging fruit item. But the bottom line is, is we need to talk each other's language. And, uh, you know, whether it was my wife sweet talking them, whether it was ultimately the 50 bucks each that did it, you know, I'm not sure. But yeah, on the, mo- on the minute that the keynote started, they stopped and they went for lunch. So it worked. So we just need to learn how to talk each other's language. I don't mean to get off the topic of AI, but I really think once we understand what motivates each other, what's going to get each of us to change um, we need to do it, and we need to get uncomfortable doing that. We need to open our wallets. But but once we get out of the pandemic, I really think, yeah, the tools are talking to each other. I, I haven't done a, a Google search in terms of the analytics that show for the phrase or the word interoperability. Mm-hmm. I have a feeling nobody's talking about interoperability anymore because our tools are talking to each other. Finally, yeah. 
Yeah, and open source, as you point out, is really something that is happening. Uh, even Autodesk and is coming around with that. So it's, I'm not going to go so far as to say it's a renaissance, but we're in the midst of an enlightened time right now. Yeah. And whether, again, whether it takes a site, whether it takes an individual to try to connect these dots, or whether each of us just by zooming in and zooming out, zooming out more, we need to work that zooming out muscle more as we're coming out of the pandemic. Maybe that's a perfect analogy of coming out, zooming out of the pandemic. Yeah, I think these tools will make us more productive. I think these tools will help us to compete with those who, um, all the things you've covered on your other podcast, all the challenges that we face as a profession industry, I think it's going to help us, you know, overcome these obstacles and these speed bumps that we've had. And I do think we're, you know, in the next decade ahead, we're going to have a much easier time of things. Yeah, it's it's interesting because things are changing quickly. I think this kind of leads into our, our next topic and your latest book, Adapt as an Architect, you wanted to create kind of a roadmap of case studies, it sounds like, on how people could navigate their way through a very quickly changing set of experiences, career types. Like there's when, when I taught at Cal Poly Pomona, I taught emerging technology, and I was basically showing the students all of the jobs that didn't exist five to 10 years ago you know, potential career paths that they could take that were all technology related. That was like the overarching theme. But it was surprising just to see because I th when I was in school, there was three career paths. It was like you could become a, a management career path, a technical career path or a design career path. And everybody focused on the design part of that. And so a lot of people got disappointed <laughs> when they actually ended up because that's the smallest percentage of people in the firms, it seems like. So now it's such a wide band of potential within the profession and what we're talking about here with all these different stars all these things that are kind of even they're probably even considered AEC adjacent they're very technology oriented they're trying to solve specific problems for AEC to collaborate and communicate and document and do all the things that we do throughout the design process which is a very long process this book is about navigating as a mid-career architect or designer or AE professional within that broad landscape. So maybe you could lay the groundwork of the main premise. If I did a bad job there, what what how can how can you explain the main premise of Adapt as an Architect? No, you did a fantastic job, and Evan, you're uh, it was a thrill to actually have you contribute. Yeah, so I actually had a lot of discussion um, with the marketing team with my editor about a word that was on, the, it's the subtitle, in the subtitle of the book. And what that word is, is companion. Mm -hmm. Even my wife, who's in marketing and market research, uh, said companion is kind of a weak word for an architecture book. But having, you know, been in this field for over 35 years myself, um, practicing um, for 30 of those years, I saw the mid-career, and that's defined in the book, is 10, uh, 10 years into your career, so you're past being an emerging professional, up to 25 of those, many examples of architects featured in the book who um, are well past the 25 year mark who still consider themselves mid-career architects. Welcome to architecture. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And my feeling was when I went through it, even though I was mentoring others, it was a very lonely time. It was a little bit about sink and swim. Even our professional organizations that are here to support us. They, I found that they, and this is something, you know, I talked about in, uh, in the very first 
talk I gave professionally, and I've done over 200 since then, in 2010, um, about mid-career professionals, how they're abandoned or they're not really focused on in our field. And so I essentially see this book as an opportunity to come back to that topic and provide a book that can serve as a companion. So what my editors and the marketing team really want to do, like you alluded to with a roadmap, is they want to get rid of the word uh, companion and they want to substitute it with compass. But as you're pointing out, there are so many different possibilities of what you can do with an architecture degree or what you can do in your career. The implication of a compass or roadmap is that, that you know somebody's got the answer for you right. and no one really does. Each one of us is, uh, uh, of course, is an individual, but unlike any other time in history, there are so many different um, paths we could go on. And what is missing for me is it's not necessarily Siri for architects, but it is a little bit like a GPS in the sense that you can talk saying, I've come up to this fork in this road. There's this opportunity my boss has given me. It would shake up my family life or may you know, displace us and we would have to pick up and move for two years. But there is this promise or hint of a promotion, something like that. Is this something I should or shouldn't do? Yeah, if you're lucky enough to have a mentor, maybe, you know, you can get answers that way. Um, but more than likely, you know, given the mid-career architects I talk to, um, most of them don't have uh, mentors themselves. They are serving as mentors for others. And so I wanted this book to be something, a touchstone that you can um, reach out to at different times throughout your mid-career. I mean, 10 years to 25 years, 15 years, it's a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of things that can pop up, like pandemics and economic downturns, but also things like, you know, maybe you thought you weren't going to have a family and now you are. What are the implications? Something uh, you addressed in your ARE hacks book uh, wonderfully. And so all of these things I wanted to address, everything from the subject of gender and the implications of mid-career to mm -hmm. economic downturns and what they mean, all the great recessions that we're going to face every 10 or 12 years out. So that's really it more, more than a roadmap. Um, it's really in more than a specific chart. It's looking at, this is, look at, I, I reached out at a time when we were social distancing in the pandemic when we really didn't have an opportunity to socialize. So unlike my Think Like an Architect book, which is a book research, unlike any book that I've written, I've written six now or published six now, uh, it's the first time that I just based Think Like an Architect on 400 different academic sources uh, for content and didn't talk to a human being. I went back to form and uh, used or leveraged practice-based research. So not ethnographic like I normally do, but just talking to 50 different individuals and pieced it all together, stitched it all together into a tapestry. And I'm hoping this book could serve almost what was called during World War II as a commonplace book um, where soldiers, when they found themselves in troughs or kind of, you know, found themselves out in the field alone, that they can turn to these books for support, for sustenance. Yeah, That's really what I want this book to be. That's awesome. It's interesting that you're looking for case studies or experience from architects who are kind of, like you mentioned, the forgotten. And, and they, they're doing a lot of thinking. They're doing a lot of doing. They're the ones making sure that those projects are delivered. They're the ones who are making sure that all of those dots within the project are connected. And there's so much experience being gained there. And I, I've often felt that way myself, where it's like, if you're not creating your own opportunities you're kind of just stuck in this current and there's not an easy way out of it 
and it's strong. Um, a quote that came up, and I, I just talked with my other co-host on my other podcast about this, uh, that came up during a podcast I was listening to that Alex Honnold, the famous free soloist rock climber, just started called uh, Climbing Gold. And he said, if you demand other people have the same experience than you, then you're on the wrong side of history. And I thought that was such an interesting, because they're talking about kind of innovation within the climbing world, but it totally applies to what we're talking about within architecture as well. I feel like a lot of those mid-career architects are in that situation because the older generations just demand that they have the same experience that they did. And I think what we're seeing now is a lot of pressure from the outside, from technology, kind of bubbling up and putting pressure on this demanding current that we see with kind of the way things have always been, you know, in podcasting air quotes, that's making it possible for people to change direction and do something different, like I recently did, um, to get out of, quote unquote, architecture proper and and become somebody who I feel like I want to I want to make a bigger change to the whole profession. I want to help that be possible. It just seems like there's this new additional pressure that didn't exist before with all these companies and it kind of going back to our first conversation around AI and you know just these different puzzle pieces and the people who are really pushing for betterment, better ways of working, better ways of doing things, not accepting the status quo. Do you address kind of those pressures that we're seeing in this book from the outside of the normal career path of an architect as it used to be defined? Oh, absolutely. Um, But I also share my biases really early on in the book. And um, the major bias that's behind this book and basically everything that I do is that I want the reader, I want the architect to stay in architecture stay in our industry yeah yeah and, and so it's actually it's a uh, a relief valve um in saying this so in other words when we have too many choices everyone knows this right it, uh we can freeze up uh, we get we get uh petrified or immobilized by having um too many opportunities available to us you know even when i hear myself say you can leverage an architecture as a professor you can leverage an architectural uh, background or education in a, any number of fields, right? <laughs> That's a paralysis for a lot of people to hear that. It really can be, exactly. Yeah. And I'm not doing this necessarily just for the reader. I'm sharing this bias because um, we need you. Yeah, we need, we need everyone to right. apply their design thinking, to apply their education to our field, to improve it, but also to do the things that we um, are trained or educated to do, which is improve the prospects for others. So that's not to say I don't want people to have um, uh, secondary careers. I gave a TEDx talk several years ago, and I even have an appendix in the book, Adept as an Architect, where I talk about this idea um, without actually spelling out the success of sigmoid curves of jumping off at inflection points. But the importance of, um, well, let me me take a step back for a second. The first half of the book is about how to become relevant in our field and then how to remain relevant, again, based on the feedback from um, and the advice and insights from the 50 architects um, such as yourself um, that I reached out to. But the second half of the book is about reinvention. Mm-hmm. It is about pivoting. It is about having passive income. It is about, you know, open a furniture company, um, do your startup. It's great. Maybe have, you know, architecturally cleverly named ice cream uh, treats out of right. your ice cream truck. Um, you know, but don't abandon architecture to do that. 
So there are many ways, as I point out, to reinvent. But I think by spelling that out, by creating this gestalt that doesn't include everything in the whole world, it actually makes it seem almost manageable. So I think there's a strong encouragement in the book to branch out beyond what you're currently doing. We all need to reinvent ourselves, as you just did currently. Um, but also as you're speaking to me right now, right? You're having a podcast. There's nothing in architecture at school that would lead you to think that right. you need to do something like this on the side. But it's incredibly important um, to bring these individuals in and uh, connect the dots for others. So it is my hope that once people read the first half of the book and they understand not only why they're relevant, even currently doing nothing more than they you know, currently are doing, but, you know, these are the things you need to do to remain relevant. And part of what that is about is reinventing ourselves. It's a little ironic in a way that you actually need to constantly reinvent yourself in our field, just not so much so that you need to leave the field. Yeah, that's really uncomfortable for a lot of people. It's really uncomfortable to you, you think like, well, I just got it figured out. What what do I ha- I have to change now? I have to. And, and we see a lot of people who have been in the profession for a very long time, extremely unmalleable in that way. And so it seems like there is a lot of expectation built up by the, let's just call it, you know, the profession, the, the, the people who have been in the profession for a long time, this kind of lineage that we have, this pedigree that's bred into everybody that it, it works like this. And now we're seeing all of this other opportunity happening. And what you're saying is, yeah, do a little bit of it on the side, like scratch those itches do those things, take that experience and inject it back into the profession. And I would also say that there's a lot of opportunity to run your own startup within a firm that already exists inside of the profession, right? That's that's what I was doing before this, which was we basically started the digital practice at the firm that didn't exist before. It, it, it was more of just like, a yeah, we, we use technology, but now this was a very kind of intentional strategy and intentional use and intentional look at where we're going and where we're headed in the future and how we're going to get there. It seems like there's a lot of opportunity like that. I know there's a lot of people working in firms who are doing exactly that. And I I wonder, you know, if you could share a couple of examples from the book of where people are scratching their itch outside of or within this kind of startup idea that I was just talking about and bringing that and helping it push these firms that have been around for 70, 80, 90, 100 years into the future? Sure. First, I'd like to just take a step back and say that um, one of the things that has hurt us as design professionals is this, uh, two words. One is um, becoming a specialist, and the other one is expertise or ex- being an expert. Mm-hmm. I think it's important that we all bring to collaborative teams or multidisciplinary teams you know, if you think of individuals ideally as being T-shaped, the vertical stanchion or the vertical part of the T, yeah, you need to bring something of value, right, to the team. Chances are, if you're only one year into the field, you're just going to be a generalist at that point. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, three, five, 10 years in, you have something to back your ideas. And then it's time to start working on your uh, social integration, your graciousness with others, and so on. All the people skills, soft skills, attitudes, and whatnot. This idea of the expertise, if you just think about it, the pandemic brought a lot of things out. It didn't change anything so much as just bring to our attention gaps and weaknesses uh, that we had. And one of them is, yeah, if you were an expert 
in office design, good luck to you, right? You know, with the uh, right. offices, unless you're going to be doing adaptive reuse of offices into housing or something else. Uh, yeah, you could become, you can leverage it to create more uh, socially distanced office space. That's something you could do. But similarly, you know, examples in the book that I use, again, just sticking with this idea of expertise is I use the example of at the beginning of the pandemic, if somebody was working in healthcare or uh, hospital design and they were, you know, perceived as being an expert in that area, if they were approached either by the media or by a client as saying, we've got this large community center, we've got this convention center, Mm -hmm. Can you think of a way of reworking it so that it can uh, adapt to a healthcare facility for COVID and for testing and whatnot? And the thing is, is there's a lot of individuals who weren't malleable, who were kind of fixed and saying, I could turn this into a hospital if that's what you're asking, but I don't do adaptive reuse. So, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, I would have to you know, bring somebody else in who works in adaptive reuse. That's actually not a bad thing, right? If you can leverage your network and find a way to actually work with that client, that's a much better circumstance to be in. And it's a better way of thinking than just, you know, looking, you're, you're being a hammer and seeing every opportunity as a nail. Right. So that said, yeah, I, this book is not really spelled out as a collection of these are the things you can do moving forward to reinvent yourself. Um, a lot of them have to do with just reinventing yourself by rising within your organization and taking on a leadership role that maybe you never saw yourself doing. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of Gen X's, you know, mm-hmm. came, the, followed in the footsteps of baby boomers who never saw themselves as leaders, but suddenly are getting passed over where these leadership opportunities, there's an lo- amazing amount of leadership opportunities that are coming out of the pandemic where managing partners or managing principals of firms are stepping down and they're handing them to the millennials. Yeah. The forgotten generation is Gen X for sure in that. Exactly. Yep. And so there are examples within the book, Adapt as an Architect, where Gen Xers have stepped up and, you know, taken a deep you know, breath and said, I'm going to take this on. You know, this wasn't necessarily in my DNA. Right. You know, but the demographics didn't necessarily prepare me for this moment. But it's not just that you're next in line or next in succession to take on this role. You see it as an opportunity. Something I talk about in the book is I see this as completely as a positive thing. Somebody can see this as being very limiting. But a lot of millennials even, and even Gen Zs, see um, they're afraid of making a decision mm-hmm. of what to do because they feel like in making a decision, they're going to be closing doors. Yeah. They're available to them. It's the opposite of what we were talking about a moment ago with that paralysis of choice. Right. And in their case, they don't want to make a decision. Um, And I show examples of those who make the decision and then you can see the outcome and guess what? They're living to tell the tale and it's actually all pretty beautiful. Yeah. You always will have challenges, but there are a lot of opportunities that are available to us. And so that's a real important statement I make in the book, which is there are only so many doors that will be open to you in your career. It's not unlimited. And to the extent that we uh, can be uh, aware and keep our eyes open and ears open, we, when we see these or recognize these opportunities, we will go with them and great things can happen from that for yourself. And then you'll create great opportunities for others. Right. Again, that's something you just alluded to a moment ago with mid-career architects. It is a sink or swim situation. Um, but one of the things mid-career architects do for the rest, and don't get 
out of boys or out of girls, or they don't get a claim for doing this because it is sort of one of those behind the scene things is they create opportunities for everybody else. Mm-hmm. They make sure that six months down the line, eight months down the line, there's work for everybody else. Right. And that's a huge thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's another thing that uh, we talk about in the book. That's a big responsibility for sure. Let's take a break from this conversation and welcome back the sponsor for this episode, Arc IT. You may be doing IT yourself or have someone you trust doing it. So why would you even consider switching IT providers to make technology your competitive advantage anyway? Well, many of you don't feel like you're getting enough value from your current IT provider. Some examples of this include slow response times for critical issues, the inability of your provider to answer key questions that you have pertaining to your business, the same issues showing up over and over without long-term solutions to the root of the problem, and it's just likely that they're doing an okay job and you'd rather avoid a difficult conversation with the people already in place. Well, the truth is, okay doesn't cut it and the right IT provider can make a meaningful difference in your day-to-day work experience and in the bottom line of your business. It's also key to remember that you are in business to make money, and the right IT provider can help. A great IT provider takes on the load of managing the transfer process, so you don't have to worry about it, and you can concentrate on running the business. They take on all the work with onboarding through the allocation of their resources, and include you in the critical decisions along the way to minimize your time away from billable work. So, as business owners and architects, how often do we think about our IT provider? Typically, only when things go wrong. And for many of us, unfortunately, this happens too often, especially with the latest emphasis on remote work. I know that I've had to deal with my fair share of IT fire drills. Not pleasant. ArcIT, however, is a very different kind of company. They specialize in serving architecture, design, and engineering firms. And their goal is to help you use technology as a competitive advantage. This means that they understand your technology stack and they won't waste your time and money learning how your tools work within your process. Combine that with industry-leading response times, proactive remote hardware management, and solid disaster recovery and backup solutions, that's something that everybody should be thinking of, honestly, and enterprise-grade security management. And yet, above all, these are just table stakes for a solid IT company. ArcIT goes a step further. They become your strategic partner when it comes to planning, budgeting, and integrating new technology into your business processes. So all of this sounds expensive, right? Nope. Because ArcIT is highly specialized for our industry, their pricing is on par or in some cases even lower than other IT providers. ArcIT is transparent and even publishes the pricing right on their website. Uh, Speaking of their website, there's also something else you should check out when you're there, and that is their Design Under Influence blog and video series. Again, adding value to IT type solutions across industry, all good stuff. So your business deserves a competent, responsive, and proactive IT partner. Reach out to my friends at ArcIT for a free consultation. So go to GetArcIT, that's G-E-T-A-R-C-H-I-T dot com, arc-like architecture in the middle, and click Work With Us. So thanks very much to ArcIT for sponsoring this episode of the Troxel Podcast. And now let's get back to our conversation. The story that I shared in there, you know, really was about kind of seeing a hole and deciding to be the one that was going to fill that hole because nobody else, it was obvious that nobody else was going to do that. And it it wasn't like there was a line of people who saw this opportunity. People just were going along with the way things were. And I knew there was a better way to do it. And I realized that I had to be the person who at 
at least would give it a try to see if I could gain enough consensus to start to create change so that we could have a better outcome in the future. And it did create opportunities for a lot more people to join that once there was a little bit of momentum behind it, once there was buy-in from leadership behind it. I do feel like that often comes back to the Gen X generation, which is creating that space. Like you're speaking the language, you are the bridge between the boomer and the millennial generation, and you are interpreting for each other. You're seeing all the potential, all the energy that's building from the millennial generation. There's a lot of it there. And you have to kind of go and create the space for that to affect a positive change because it doesn't happen all by itself, right? Like somebody has to go and prepare the way for that to happen. I really felt like that was a big calling for me to do that. And that was about, that was a story that I shared within, within the book. I really felt like it was, it was about creating that space for people in firms and then saying like, here's how I did it. It can be done. This needs to happen. We do need to evolve. Absolutely. No, it's a fantastic story. I'm thrilled to have it in the book. You also did something really wonderful as well. And that is you provided a uh, peephole into seeing you do that, Um, seeing what you created, the effect it has on the firm by creating the podcast, by creating the video series, by going around the country and presenting on what it is uh, you've created. And I've seen that. And it's just, it's uh, incredibly effective. And I've seen the effect, whether you hear this or see it yourself or not, it's had a positive effect where a lot of uh, design technology groups within firms are a little bit black boxes where Mm -hmm. we don't hardly know what's going on. And just the example I mentioned a little while ago of the recent keynote I gave for Perkins & Will that was the first time they ever opened up their design technology group to the public. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an exchange that they do internally every quarter. They've been doing that for a couple of years. And this opening up is something that's going to be incredibly important because it's, again, it's like open source. It's sharing knowledge. Um, it's only going to make all of us, uh, all our boats rise and all of us better. Um, so yes, again, fantastic story and adept as an architect that you tell. But also the important thing to note is what you're doing right now, you know, opening things up and sharing with others. Very important. I think it's also important. I mean, I couldn't have done it alone. And, and I, I'm not trying to say that I did. I, there was incredibly positive reinforcement from the senior leadership of the company to enable that to happen. And so I think part of my goal in telling that story was to inspire senior leadership to look for people who are in their companies who are asking for this kind of responsibility or at least showing an interest in it to enable them to do it. One of the things I did early on, and I took this, I totally stole this from Nate Miller at Proving Ground, which was a a senior leadership computational design course. And the reason I bring it up now is because like, no, I wasn't going to teach them how to run Grasshopper, but I wanted to inspire them with what can be done with it so that they could see the opportunities that they could give younger staff who are begging to use it on projects because they understand what it can do as far as environmental analysis and form making and all these different, you know, there's lots of different ways you could use the tool. But if the senior leadership doesn't understand what's possible and how that can inspire a staff who does architecture for a living, then they're never going to let it happen because it's not the shortcut they're looking for 
to making more money, right? Which is what architecture sell you people. We sell time for money. And so we're constantly incentivized to look for those shortcuts that can help us do that in a more efficient way. So by getting their gears turning, by getting them inspired to do this thing, that's the top-down approach. And then you're also building kind of this grassroots effort at the bottom to get that pressure building, to get that consensus of, yeah, we really need to be using these on projects. They're the ones who are actually going to be using it. Now all we need is the, the, the okay. We need the okay. We need the yes, the enabler at the top. And I felt like by telling this story, I don't know how much visibility senior leadership has into, especially during the pandemic, of what people are good at doing or what they want to do or what their trajectory is. How often are they checking in one-to-one to see where people want to go, to see where they think the opportunities are within their firm? But just saying, like, those stories are out there. You've got to go kind of unearth them within your staff and then start to give people the opportunities to do that. Best management story I have so when I was working at Apple and I had a manager and he said, you know, as your manager, my job is to get out of your way. And it was basically like, I'm going to remove the red tape. You have tons of runway ahead of you, tons of potential. You could choose to go any direction that you wanted. My job is to clear the red tape and get out of your way so that you can do that. And I really feel like that's a definition of leadership not management. Yeah, that's very enlightened. Uh, I wish more leaders had had that. Yeah. Um, there's, you know, examples in Adapt as an Architect where, like in the case of uh, Trina Sandschaefer, a principal at a wonderful Chicago design firm who for various reasons just couldn't break that glass ceiling, couldn't mm-hmm. get to the role that she was really put on this planet to do, to really lead, you know, even with partner or principal as the title, couldn't take her career to the next natural stage. And we've all been in circumstances like that. And so one of the things addressed within the book is how can you reinvent yourself by pivoting as opposed to, you know, doing something radically different. And in her case, you know, a lot of people tell stories like this, just went to a different organization, but it just, that pivot opened up all sorts of doors. And, you know, not only has the title, but is running, you know, the, you know, the Chicago office for, in this case, a new firm. And it's a fantastic success story because a lot of times we get frustrated and either abandon our dreams and end up opening our own firms. And then you have all sorts of other issues that you're right. dealing with, right? You're not really realizing your DNA or what you're, you're really meant to be doing. Um, so that's a concern there. Anyway, I just want to mention that as an example of something that, you know, where somebody could uh, change without necessarily having to make the change too catastrophic. Yeah, that's, an, that's interesting because you're right. When, when people often get to the breaking point and they get fed up and they're like, I'm just going to go start my own thing because I think so strongly about it only to be saddled with all of the responsibilities of all of the different things that have to be done. And then it just waters down that potency that they had to be that catalyst in whatever they're passionate about, because yeah, that's a rough situation to be in for sure. I want to go back to one thing you said a moment ago about your class that you introduced and mm-hmm. introducing it at a very high level, introducing it by pointing out what the tool can do without focusing on the tool. It's an exemplar or a telltale sign of being a super user. So in other words, what you were pointing out to those within your firm at the time was there's a value that we deliver. 
Mm-hmm. And identifying the value that we deliver is really what's really important. And not all of us see that, right? Early in our careers, we're just given tasks to do and we do them without connecting the dots or thinking about what the outcome will be. Right. So by showing what value can be delivered, whether it makes you more productive or by automating something and frees you up to do, leverage your core competency or whatever it happens to be, yeah, it gets people really inspired it gets them excited about doing things, but also connects them to the overarching purpose for having a firm to begin with. A lot of people question whether in the next five or 10 years, we will even need architecture firms. What is the value that an organization brings that individual architects, let's say in engineers and contractors coming together, let's say in hot teams, a lot like the movie industry, you know, couldn't we just come together for a specific project and then break all apart and come together in a different group for another project? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's possible. But there is something that an organization brings. And one of the things is what you're just saying right there, which is, you know, shining a light on what's possible for mm-hmm. others. And, you know, it's one of the beautiful things that I think an organization or firm can bring that individuals can't necessarily. So. And often just exposing the fact that these talents already exist within your quote unquote walls, right? You just have to enable them to happen. And and it wasn't a presentation. This was a workshop. And I think it's important to just say this is that I wasn't going to just put up a PowerPoint and say, data, 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 look, 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 here's the people. It was like, no, we're, we installed the software on every one of their laptops. We made it a working session taught them about inputs and outputs and this link to that makes this happen it's cause and effect right and and it was very simple though it was just like let's build a a five node grasshopper graph and make this box squish and stretch and you should have seen their faces it was like whoa this is my because part of it for me was unlocking that kind of childlike nature of making stuff with legos it's just you're just sitting there and you're playing with this there's nothing on the line here. It's pure, like, let's get back to that making mentality. Everybody came up being a production person in some fashion within the firm. Let's get back to that for a minute. Let's remember what it was like to be that person, because that's who we're talking about here. Those are the people we need to enable to do that kind of stuff. So it was like, let's go back in this time machine with the latest technology and play with it so that you can enable other people to play with it and come up with more valuable solutions. I mean, and that's really kind of the ultimate big story was like, we are totally stuck right here, right now. Our designs, they look the same. There's nothing that is progressing in our architecture. We're limited by the tool set. There's this whole other world out there, guys. Let's enable people that already sit here to do that and bring that value through this firm, through this giant conduit of experience and you know we've got this great reputation let's build on that and take it to the next level and it worked it was a fantastic it just had a great outcome and it wasn't like everybody was fully engaged the whole time yeah they were still checking email here and there and they were still looking at their phones here and there but overall i felt like it was a a giant success into creating the space in our organization to enable that to happen so I I hope it inspires other people to do something similar because those opportunities are out there and they're ripe and you don't have to go anywhere else to find those opportunities. They are usually right where you're at. Yeah, and that's one of the beautiful things that a mid-career architect can bring, not necessarily will bring, but can bring, has the perspective, has the wherewithal, has the... um, 
Yeah, the, the wounds, uh, war wounds, uh, yeah. having uh, gone through um, several years in the career. I'll never forget when I was a grad student, an administrator. Well, I heard the sound of somebody falling downstairs, and it turned out they were jumping like eight or nine steps at a time, going down an exterior stairwell, and all of a sudden, boom, landed right in front of me in a, in a three-piece suit and tie with glasses on and everything, sweating, and I just stared at this person, and they explained, they're going through a divorce, their therapist recommended that, you know, they're sort of mid-career and, you know, it was a really good idea to let loose sometimes. They were just didn't think anyone was down at the bottom of the stairs and apologized and walked away. <laughs> it was an incredible moment for me, you know, being a, you know, a 22, 23-year-old at the time and seeing a grown-up do something like that. And um, it's interesting because hopefully you don't have to go, necessarily go through therapy to arrive at that. Um, you just have to go through a career in architecture to <laughs> arrive at a very similar perspective, which is, and it comes across in your videos, in your talks about, for, you know, whether it's on climbing or your uh, mountain biking through the uh, Vietnam Trail, it, that level of playfulness and ability to play can be perceived by emerging professionals or even students as being, I've never heard this specifically, uh, you know, in this case, but I've heard it about me. If you're able to play, that means you're not on deadline. And that means you, you don't, you're not buried under a level of tasks. And so, you know, it must be in an entitled way of approaching a career. And I actually don't think that's true. I think uh, all of us need to be able to kind of dig our way out of the tasks or to-do lists and from time to time, be able to take a deep breath and be able to play with what we have. It's, it's the way that we move beyond our specialization and our expertise, because then you can realize these are just tools that we can leverage along right. with all the other, other tools that we can apply to any situation. That playfulness is a gift that you gave the people you were working with in the firm through this workshop and through all the other things that you do. And that playfulness is one of the things a mid-career architect can share with others to inspire them and see what they do in a new light and get them excited for the next five or 10 years out yeah. as well. I think it's a really important thing to recognize. And a lot of um, what I share in the book, Adept as an Architect, are these stories having to do with play and with um, being able to at least play or mess with what it is you know so you can leverage it in a new way and open up opportunities for the firm you're in or opportunities for those you are mentoring or who are coming up within the firm. Yeah, I, I think it's worth noting that I take play very seriously. <laughs> it's not like a goofy play kind of a thing. It's it's really important for me. And I'm not saying it's for everybody, but it is for me. And because it does unlock doors, it does allow me to connect dots in unconventional ways that I wouldn't have seen coming if I hadn't partaken in that kind of experiential nature of play. That's why I feel it's so important because it it just it works for me, and and it's like it's like you said you you don't have a guidebook, you don't have a roadmap, you have a companion. It's a great way to think about it because these stories can help create the space for people to think about other possibilities. Not that it's the way that they're going to do these things. Not that that it is the way to approach them. There is it's so different for everybody, but it does enable it breaks down those barriers so that people start to think outside of the boundaries that they're typically thinking. And I think it's so important to bring additional experience into that conversation. 
Absolutely. And I did that for myself um, when I was a student. I, uh, whether I was minoring or double majoring or just immersed in the world of playwriting while studying architecture. Mm, I remember that you said that, yeah. Yeah, and it, it gave me this opportunity then to spend a lot of time at, in the theater and watching rehearsals. And I'll never forget this one director who was directing a Shakespeare play with these student actors. He had a fantastic technique. And I would sit on the floor watching hour after hour of these rehearsals. And nobody would realize this if you saw the final um, presentation of the play in public, uh, you know, bought a ticket and showed up. But what he did is he would stop everyone at a moment and say, okay, now what we're going to do is everybody's in an Elvis Presley movie. Okay, this is the beach scene. You're, all, you're Elvis, you're the girl, blah, blah, blah. And all of them, boom, almost like improv, would have to act out those roles, but saying their lines, their Shakespearean lines in the play. It was really unbelievable because, yeah, it loosens everybody up, but it does a lot more. It, sh- it opens up opportunities. And there's some reason the director thought of that, you know, Elvis Presley movie as opposed to something else. There was something that they were getting at without dictating you know, as a director, what everyone needed to do. And so, yeah, take play seriously. I absolutely agree about that. I mean, take it unseriously from time to time just to yeah. uh, enjoy life. I'm not trying to dictate how you play. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But no, there is a there is a science to it, and it absolutely is an important thing. And I think the mid-career architect, even more than the, uh, you know, the senior architect uh, later on in their career is the right one. Yeah, they're more relatable with the younger generation um, as a stepping stone. They're, they're who the emerging professionals who will stay in our profession aspire to be. You know, a lot of times we talk about it mid-career, training our replacements. Yeah. I've literally done that. I mean, literally like, mm-hmm. why did I just do that? You know, but it's uh, a very important thing. And it's, you know, keeping that element of play will keep us young and flexible throughout our careers. No question. About it. There's this weird dichotomy, right? It's um, like, I love routine, just like the next person. And yet, in our profession, we're so willing to reinvent the wheel over and over and over again, and not standardize on things or whatever. So well, I can interject for a second and not to cut you off, but to say, that when I talk about these successive sigmoid curves, I'm talking about two inflection points. The first one is nobody ever spells out to you. No one shows you where it is. But basically, when people ask me what it is I teach, I don't say professional practice. I don't say design studio and whatnot. What I say is I teach students to recognize that first inflection point because nobody else will show you when it occurs. And what that is, is once you've repeated what you do well enough that you can do it a third, fourth, fifth time, that's the time to switch over to something new. Yeah. You know? And if you wait till you get called into your boss's office to say, no, you've done very well for us, past tense. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And um, but your services are no longer needed. Chances are you're at the second inflection point and it's too late at the you know, time to say, can I change? Yeah. Yeah. You got to capitalize early on that stuff. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. I can't wait to get the book and read the book uh, and read these other stories. And I, I just wanted to say, you know, I really appreciate you putting this companion together and reaching out and managing i can't imagine what that process was even like to set deadlines for people to do this on the side and i'm sure it was incredibly difficult but i i really appreciate you doing that and following through with that and creating this amazing resource and i think it's going to be extremely useful for so many people and i i'm, I'm excited that it's uh that it's now available 
Thanks, Evan. And uh, I'm looking forward to hearing what you think of it once uh, you get your hands on a copy. And it was a wonderful again to have you uh, in the book and tell your story. Really appreciate it. And thanks again for having me here today. Yeah, and you're you're a force in the profession, and uh, I, I appreciate what you do. So obviously, I'll have a link to the book in the show notes for this episode, Adapt as an Architect. You can find it on Amazon. I'm sure you can find it in other places as well. Randy, where can people find out more about you and, and follow along your journey and what you're doing with all the, the speaking and the engagements? Yeah, probably the easiest place is just type my name in, uh, .com, so uh, randydeutsch.com, my website, click on speaking or whatever, and uh, it's all there. Fantastic. Yeah, and we'll have, we'll have links to all that in the show notes as well. So thanks for spending the time to have this conversation today, Randy. I can't wait to read the book, and I'll talk to you soon. Fantastic. Thanks, Evan. Thanks for listening to the Troxel Podcast. And once again, I would like to thank ArcIT for sponsoring this episode. Visit their website at GetArcIT, that's G-E-T-A-R-C-H-I-T dot com. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at GableMedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A dot com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for eTroxel. Talk to you soon.